so glad that you're here this morning with us and uh, a part of uh, Outward Church and what, what God is doing here. Um, I'm excited about our members meeting that's coming up on March 3rd. And, uh, and with that, that's the first time we've ever done a members meeting. If, uh, if you're a member and you don't show up because you don't think it's going to be important, um, that, that would be a bummer to me. I, I really hope that you come. Um, I think it's going to be really important. Um, a lot of times we don't do focused prayer in groups and things like that. And part of that is because uh, uh, we, we want uh, people that come here from the outside uh, to feel comfortable in these gatherings. And so we, we do focused prayer in groups uh, when, we, when we know it's, it's mostly us uh, believers and things like that. And so we want to pray together. We want to talk about where the church is headed. We want to talk about uh, what, what we see God doing. We want to ask you to be a part of that. Um, I think we'll have a time there where we want to hear from some of you. Um, as well, but really hoping that you'll be a part of that. Last week I said, hey, if you haven't been to BASIC yet, um, uh, uh, you need to go to BASIC before you go to the membership class. Here's what we're going to do is that uh, we, we want to encourage you, if you want to become a member and you've been, if you've been here for uh, at least three months, you've been attending regularly, those kinds of things, um, that you can skip BASIC. We are, <laughs> we're we're going to give you a free pass on this, and we'll give you the, we'll give you the, the quick version of, of BASIC at the membership class and um, that, that should be great. We just realized we don't need to be legalistic about this. Like, we, if you want to become a member, uh, please come to the membership class. It's on, um, uh, is it the 24th of this month? Is that right? You don't know. Okay. That's uh, okay. Sorry. Uh, I think it's the 24th of this month. Um, I don't even know where Ryan is. So I think it's the 24th. You'll find out. You can go out to Connect Central, find out more about that. If you want to become a member, that'll be great. Uh, and then March 3rd, we'll be on members meeting. Okay. So that's, that's awesome. And uh, we're excited about what God has for us in this coming season. And so we're inviting you to be a part of that with us. Membership is essentially an invitation uh, to an engage in mutual accountability towards being a disciple that loves Jesus and lives outward. And so that's what we're hoping to see happen in this church is that we, we become even more focused on actually making disciples and not just uh, all of us just kind of like, ah, oh, we're here, we're members, like, right, let's, you know, let's keep going to church kind of a deal. We want to talk about what it looks like to actually uh, be a disciple and, and help each one of us uh, gain in that um, in a greater capacity. Uh, so we're going to be in Genesis chapter 12. We'll pick it up in verse 10 in just a couple minutes. So if you have a Bible, uh, you can turn there. Genesis chapter 12, we'll pick it up in verse 10. Um, last week we were talking uh, uh, about the call of Abram and what that looked like in his life and how he, uh, he's in Ur of the Chaldees. It doesn't seem like there's any reason why God would have called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. It's a very pagan nation. Uh, historically, as you look at this, it's very clear that this is a pagan area. These are pagan people. It, um, Abram's own father is a pagan. Uh, we know that from uh, other passages and, and things like that. And so he, God calls him out of there. We don't, there. There's no reason why God would have called him. He just calls Abram, and Abram comes out of there. He, he obeys God. He takes a little side trip to, uh, to Haran, but then he kind of continues on, and God says, I'm, I'm going to bless you. He says uh, in verse 2 of chapter 12, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who, him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
And within that is a promise of there's a future blessing through your offspring. The Apostle Paul in Galatians uh, chapter 3 makes clear that that's, that's not plural, it's singular, it's one person, it's through you. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed. It's through this one offspring that is the seed of the woman from uh, Genesis chapter 3.15. That's the first time that the good news of Jesus is preached is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, saying that there's going to be this offspring, there's going to be this seed, there's going to be this person that comes from a woman, and that is Mary, and he is going to bring blessing to all of the earth. And so there's this huge promise in Abram and in his wife, essentially, who is barren, when God says, I'm going to make of you a great nation, and I'm going to bless all the families of the earth, Like, that's a pretty crazy promise because she's uh, barren. She is struggling with infertility, and (laughs) this is a huge promise that God has, not just for her, but for Abram and the whole world, the whole world. And so uh, what, what we get through here is that we've got this guy, Abram, he believes God. It says later that he believes God, and it's counted to him as righteousness, And so what we can do is that we can kind of make these biblical characters heroes. We can make Abram a hero. And we can say, this guy is heroic. Let's be like Abram. And so one of the things that I want to point your attention to is that there are some really great things about Abram. Last week I told you that I wanted to get into this more as we go along in future weeks here and talking about Abram. But there's some key things about Abram that he learns. The first thing is this, is that he's loyal to Yahweh. He's loyal to God. That's God's name. He's loyal to Yahweh even when no one else is. Now, the second thing is that he lives as if his promises are true, even when it makes no sense. He trusts God. Number three is that he loves God and others through his righteous actions, through his righteous actions and uh, in his just actions, his justice. And then number four is he looks to the Lord's provision in the Messiah, He's ultimately looking forward to the blessing that's coming through him from the offspring that's singular, that is Jesus. He's ultimately looking for his provision, his salvation in that Messiah. Now, I want you to look at verse 10 with me because it's going to seem to discount everything I just said. Okay, chapter 12, verse 10. It says, now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you're my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? 
Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Now, here we have this incredible biblical figure, Abraham. He's the father of our faith, in essence. The human father of our faith, I should say. And he, here he is, and he is this incredible person that we look to and we say, man, look at his amazing life. But then he goes and he does something so strange, so crazy. I mean, look at, look at what he does at the end of, uh, at the end of um, in verse, uh, let's see here, verse 6 of chapter 12. It says, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak at Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So all of these pagan people are around. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I'll give this land. So Abram builds an altar there, uh, uh, an, an altar to the Lord whom appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built another altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. He's proclaiming God. And then Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. It's like he's going from here and he's going from there and he's worshiping God. He's engaged with God. He's, he's building altars. And over and over and over again, he is regularly worshiping God and building altars and all of these things. And he's having this incredible time. God is speaking to him. And it's amazing. And you wouldn't believe it. And I'll bet you it would be a passionate existence. But then very quickly after that, he's going towards the Negev, and then all of a sudden, what happens is a famine hits. A famine hits. He's in a very dry and desolate place. He's been worshiping God all along. Famine hits, and then what takes place is this. He thinks to himself, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I'm going to die. I've got to go do something. I've got to make something happen. I've got to control this situation, and now I've got to take matters into my own hands, and now I'm going to go, okay, I'm go going to Egypt. There's some rivers. There's some bodies of water. It's a very fertile land. They've still got to have food, and so I'm going to Egypt. So he goes to Egypt, and what's he do? While he's going to Egypt some more fear begins to overtake him. First of all, he's fearful for his life. Then he's fearful for uh, the fact that he's like, oh man, we're going into to this land and my wife is hot. I mean, she is hot. Uh, she might be 65 years old, but of course she lives to all, like 130, I think. And so really she's like middle-aged. She's like a 30-year-old today, but she's a good-looking mama, good-looking gal. And he's just like, Dang, Sarai, uh, you better tell them that you are my sister, which is in part true, because Sarai and Abram both have the same father. A little weird, I know, okay? <laughs> this is the olden days, right? <laughs> like, we don't do stuff like that anymore. Uh, maybe in Sio, but not here, not here. <laughs> not here. <laughs> Sorry, Sio. Uh, I got to find another town that no one's going to be from. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, so, he's, so he tell, tells her, tell a half-truth for me. Tell a half-truth, and uh, when we get there, otherwise, I mean, I'm going to be dead. They're going to kill me. So Sarai, I need you to lie for me. I need you to lie. Now, this would have worked out fine 
if it was really just the, uh, you know, the people of Egypt that saw him and not these royal people like the Pharaoh and princes and things like that. It would have worked out fine because as uh, the man in his family, he would have had rights over, one commentator says, over whether Sarai would marry this person or that person. So all he would have to do is he'd play it off for a second and say, uh, let me think about whether I want you, whether I want to let you marry my sister Sarai. And so, and then, uh, you know, and then all of a sudden he could be like, okay, let's jet, let's get out of here. So it would have given him some time, one person says. What he didn't plan on was the fact that the princes were going to see Sarai and then go to Pharaoh and say, dang, Pharaoh, you've got to see this gal. She's a looker. Like, you've got to see her. And then Pharaoh's just like, really? That's awesome. So then he finds out, hey, oh, uh, she's your sister uh, and not your wife. Great. I'll take her into my harem. So his plan kind of backfires on him. His plan backfires. And so uh, what happens is this. As a result of uh, Pharaoh taking his wife, Sarai, whom Pharaoh thinks is his sister, uh, Pharaoh pays him. Pharaoh pays him in camels and, and donkeys and male servants and female servants. Some people say this is probably where he got Hagar, who will be later in the, in the story, who causes problems, not necessarily her, her fault, but his fault. So he gets all of these riches. He gets very rich as a result. He gets very rich. And then it says, but the Lord. Now, anytime you see this idea of but the Lord, it should raise your interest. You should, you should be like, oh man, this is the way that it was going. What, what's the way that it was going? Well, here God has this plan set in motion. God has set a plan into motion, and he has determined that this will take place. He made a promise to Abram. He said, "Through uh, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed from your offspring. I'm going to give you this land. I mean, God, God is like pouring out blessing after blessing after blessing. Now think about what could have been taking place here, and that is that Sarai is taken into Pharaoh's harem. She becomes his wife, remains his wife, and that's basically the end of it, and Abram and God's promises are no more. But God's promises were put in place way back in the beginning. Remember I said, Abram came out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and Abram was in the midst of this generation that was pagan. And there's no reason why he should have been following God. So Abram didn't get into God's good graces because he's just a really great, good-looking Christian guy. Abram got into God's good graces simply because God said, Abram, I'm calling you. I'm taking you into my world. You're going to be my man. I'm going to use you in this way. So Abram didn't get into it through his good behavior. And so Abram 
can't screw this up at this point. But I think there's something worth taking a look at here. First of all, is Abram loyal to Yahweh even when no one else is? Well, there really is no one else at this point. It's just him. There's no peer pressure. There's no nothing. It's simply fear. It's simply fear. The fear of going hungry. The fear of God not fulfilling his promises. The fear of whatever. Is, is Abram loyal to Yahweh even when no one else is? No. He's not loyal. Is Abram living as if God's promises are true even when it makes no sense? No. He is not. Is Abram loving God and others through his righteous actions? No. He threw his wife under the bus. Is Abram looking to the Lord's provision in Messiah? No. Is Abram a faithful guy in this sense? Is Abram a righteous guy in this sense? And the answer is no. The answer is no. How do we deal with that? We'll come back to that. Let's first of all, let's look at what his issues are. His first issue is this, is that he has an amazing faith conversion. God calls him. God awakens his heart to the reality of who he is. God softens his heart, and Abram says yes to God. He follows. But then immediately after this, famine comes. See, faith is often followed by famine, one commentator says. Kent Hughes, I believe. Faith is often followed by famine. We come to faith... And we think, okay, I've, I've found what I need. We turn over a new leaf. Many of you have gotten married recently, or you wanted to get married, and so you came to church, because that's where you get married. You grew up in church, and so you came to church, and you were like, okay, I'm going to do this at least for a little while, so the pastor will think, I'm a good person, and then he'll marry us, and that'll be, that'll be fantastic. By the way, we don't marry people because we think they're good people. We marry people because it's, it's what God would have us do. But we're glad that you're here. What brought you to, to Outward Church? What brought you to faith? There's some of us, we go through like a really difficult experience. And we find there is nothing else in our world. Everything seems out of control. We do not have control over all, any of the circumstances. Could be death in the family. It could be the loss of a business. It could be the loss of a child. It could be sickness. It could be any kind of devastation. And we find ourselves in a place of just feeling like, I just need to, to go to somewhere that I can hang on to. And so you come to God. And in our culture, that means you go to church a lot of times. You go to God and you say, okay, yes to God. And then God answers that prayer. God fulfills that promise. God has awakened you to the reality that you are not in control. God has awakened you to the reality that you do need him in your life. And so you begin to believe his promises. Perhaps you receive Jesus Christ for the first time. Or perhaps you reaffirm your faith that you had when you were a kid in your parents' home or something like that. Or perhaps after years and years of stumbling and walking away and all of this stuff, you finally say, I've been a dead and lifeless Christian and now I'm here and you've reaffirmed this faith. And so God comes to you and he speaks to you. <clears throat> he comes to you and he speaks to you. He awakens your heart 
and you're alive and you have passionate experiences with God. But then famine comes. Famine comes and you are knocked off your rocker. I mean, you, you're just like, God, how could you allow this to happen? I, I, this happened in my life. I finally said yes to God. I finally said, okay, I'll go your way. And then as uh, massive things were taken away from me in my life, that were close personal things, through devastation, I remember where I was sitting, and I remember saying to God, essentially, forget you. If you want me, come and get me. I think I said those words. Because I did, was not prepared for the fact that after faith comes famine so often. I was not prepared for it. And Abram, in a sense, who could blame him? I mean, how long has he been with God? It's been a short time. It's been a short time. We get into faith thinking, as long as I'm doing what God wants me to do, then he's going to take care of me in my way, in my time. He's gonna take care of me by making sure that my family is whole and that my wife or my husband won't leave. He's gonna take care of me and that I, uh, I'm gonna keep my job and I'm, and I'm, and I'm gonna be able to uh, support myself. He's gonna take care of me and that he's going to finally give me a, a spouse. He's going to take care of me, whatever it is, whatever you would fill in the blank with. But see, God is so gracious. God is so incredibly gracious. He's so incredibly powerful that what he does in those moments is that he knows your heart. He knows your circumstances. He knows what ultimately is rivaling him being king in your life, him being the ruler over your heart. And God, in his absolute grace and mercy, comes uh, to you in these moments of delusion where you think everything is right. God is giving me what, my wa what I want. And God knows this. God knows that your true God is not God. Your true God is the existence of this relationship. Your true God is the existence of fill in the blank. And so famine often follows faith because our faith is not wholly into him. And what you'll find if you've been a Christian for any amount of time is that faith often, or I'm sorry, famine comes often, more often than we would like to admit because God is renewing us day by day. He's bringing in front of us and, and, and he is saying, what do you worship? Who is your king? Who is your God? For Abram, he was trying to meet the, meet the need, a very real need of subsistence, being able to survive, food, water. He was trying to survive. And so oftentimes we do not see that after faith comes famine. Are you ready for that? So what happens? Abram goes down to Egypt and he sojourns there. Abram decides, how will I be fed? 
It is a self-willed life. It is a life that says, I, uh, God, if you're not going to provide for me, I'm going to provide for myself. It's a life that's devoid of uh, remembering all the things that have come before. God, you spoke to me here, and you spoke to me there, and you spoke to me here, and you spoke to me there. there I, I don't know if you, if you know the Bible much at all, but the Passover is essentially a remembrance of what God did in Egypt. How he parts the waters and allows Israel to go through. And, 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 and it's a remembrance of how God protected them and cared for them in Egypt by sending these plagues on Egypt at that time. The, the thing about Christianity oftentimes is that, and, and Christians, is that God does amazing things and then we forget. God does something amazing and then we forget about that. So Abram, here he is, he's regularly worshiping. He's building the altars to God. He is proclaiming the name of the Lord in front of pagans and perhaps around these pagan shrines as he's claiming this area for God. And then famine comes. He immediately forgets everything that God has done. He immediately forgets his worship of God. And he says, I know how I'll fix this. And he does it. And he, he takes off. He goes. And then the second thing, he deserves, I should say the third, is this, is that as he's going into Egypt, he says, Sarai, I, I want you to lie for me. It's kind of a half-truth, but I want you to lie for me so that I can save my own skin. So there's this incredible fear that overtakes his life. And it's the fear of saving himself. And so he brings his wife in on this. He brings his wife in on this sin. And he says, I, I want you to participate in this with me. So instead of depending on the Lord and going to the Lord and saying, Lord, I, you've given me this promise and we're going hungry and I just need you to provide and seeing God miraculously provide Instead of saying, God, I don't know what we're going to do. I've gotten myself into this situation. I think they're going to kill me because Sarai is amazing. He takes matters into his own hands again. And it's driven by fear. It's driven by fear. He decides how he will be protected from evil. And we do the same thing. We decide how we're going to be protected from evil. We decide how we're going to fulfill our needs. I have a need that I believe needs to be filled. It may be a very tangible need. It may be simply rent. It may be food. But it may be any number of things that we perceive as needs. And when we get into the business of meeting our own needs, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't work and just wait for God to drop manna out of the sky, although he's done that, but... Uh, <laughs> but when we decide, when we do that without asking the Lord, when we walk into life and we say, I'm going to do that, I'm going to take over, it's when fear has taken over our lives. 
It's when fear of man has erupted in our hearts and has overwhelmed us, and now it is gripping us. It's when we determine what we believe is best, and we begin to do what we think will save us. And then along with that, our sin always affects those around us. Our sin always affects the people around us. It, it affects our family. It affects our spouse. And men, this is a great metaphor. The metaphor is this, is that the decisions that you make, regardless of what it is, oftentimes, as long as they are fear-based, not driven by God, not looking to his provision, oftentimes it pulls our spouse into that. It affects them in one way or another. We're leading our homes. We're leading our homes oftentimes in the wrong direction. I gotta tell you, I, can't, I don't think it could be any more clear for us that men, where we're leading our homes is often the wrong place because of our self-willed, American, pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps mentality, we take the wrong road all of the time. And our families suffer as a result. And we refuse to take responsibility for it. And somehow we find a way to blame our spouse. Well, if she had just done this, or if she didn't do that, or if my kids weren't whatever, instead of taking responsibility... We put the blame on them. So our sin, our lack of leadership, taking our families to the wrong place, oftentimes affects everyone else. In fact, I would, I would go so far as to say it always backfires. And just like it backfires on, on uh, Abram here, his plan backfires. God is gracious in allowing his plan to backfire. But then look at what takes place in verse 16. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had means this, that as a result of Pharaoh taking Sarai, he ends up giving Abram all of these riches. Now, remember back in these days, riches was not money, paper money, but it was land. It was people it was uh, animals, livestock, those kinds of things. But he becomes very rich. And here's the thing about this, is that he was on his way to sort of fulfilling what God had promised him, but in his own way. God said, I am going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. And blessing to Abram means this, that he is going to have a lot of stuff. He's going to have a lot of riches. And so in a way, he takes the ball and says, God, I know where to go with this. I know what to do. I know how to make this happen. And so he runs his own life and he, and he takes his own path. And in the meantime, he throws his wife under the bus and he makes out like a bandit. I don't know if he planned it that way, but I do know this, that oftentimes we have this belief that if I'm with God, then I'm going to be blessed. And so anything that is blessing is from God. And so we can delude ourselves into believing that because I've been successful, because I've made the money, because of all these things, 
then God is blessing me, and so I must be doing the right thing. The worst thing that could possibly happen to you is that you have success in going your own way, doing your own thing. The worst thing that could possibly ha happen to you. Because now you, you believe that somehow you've provided for yourself. You believe that you are God and that the, the true and living God is, is just kind of like, good job, you've, you, you've, you've done amazing. Now, how, do, how do we do that? How does this happen? A very simple analogy for this is we want more. Honey, I'm going to work more. And so therefore, we're going to have more. And then we're going to put more on credit and so then I'm going to have to work more so that we have more. And lo and behold, what you end up seeing happen is this. Two people living together that are disconnected from one another because this guy is so engaged in his work and in providing. And then mom and dad end up getting in fight after fight after fight because he's poured himself into his work and he's disconnected from his family. And so as a result... Life is beginning to fall apart. It happens in this way. A single person says, I need intimacy. I need sex. I want relationship with someone so badly. And so I will take this and I will do what I need to do in order to make it happen outside of the will of God. Meaning I go after someone who is not a believer in Jesus Christ. Meaning I go, after, I go after somebody who does not love God. And by that I mean it's not just that uh, they, they say, yes, I, I believe in God. Well, great. Even the demons believe that and shudder. It doesn't mean anything. The guy says, I go to church at this place. Okay, that's cool. There's a lot of guys that have gone to church that have done some really bad things, i.e., the Catholic church. The Southern Baptist Convention just came out uh, that lots of abuse that has happened in there. And I would submit to you, since we're all humans here, that it happens everywhere. That there's bad people who go to church. <gasps> Can you believe it? Can you believe it? I'm talking about the guy who's committed to his local church, who loves Jesus. You see it in his money. You see, does this guy give to the Lord? Is he generous? Is he serving? Do people in the church know who he is? When he introduces you to the pastor, does the pastor have to ask him his name? Uh, who are you? <laughs> oh, you're, uh, uh, what? yeah, whatever, okay. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the person that says that they know God. I'm talking about the person that does know God. We take matters into our own hands. We say, I know how to fulfill the need. I have a deep, abiding fear that I will not have relationship. And so what happens as a result, I end up going after relationship in my own way, and I get the blessing. I think I get the blessing. I get the blessing of having relationship with someone. I get the blessing of having physical intimacy with someone. And so that's all fine and good. But it's not. The plan is fine until the plan backfires. And I got to tell you that God is so gracious in allowing your plan to backfire. As you run from God in a self-willed life and as you decide for yourself and as I decide for myself what I'm going to do in order to bring blessing into my life. 
what I'm going to do in order to try to avoid the fear of man, what I'm going to do in order to be something or make something of myself. And so God is faithful. It says this in verse 17, but the Lord, it says in Ephesians, but God being rich in mercy, but God being rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. After a bunch of stuff where the Apostle Paul is saying over and over again, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Every single one of us following the ruler of the prince of the power of the air, I think is what he says. He's saying that every single one of us is a sinner. Every single one of us is chasing after this stuff that Satan puts in front of us and says, you need this and you need that. You need approval. And then the Apostle Paul says, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. As you look at this very clear story that shows Abram going after these things, and then it says, but the Lord, but the Lord steps in. But the Lord does something in his life. But the Lord makes a way. And I got to tell you, that that could be your and my story as well. You might be able to look over your life over the past 10, 15 years, and you could say, life was going amazing. And then the crash happened in 2007, 2008, whenever that was. And everything fell apart, and I realized that I was living for money, I was living for success, I was living for all these things. And you know what we could just insert there? But the Lord stepped into your life. But the Lord moved in to who, what was going on as you were trying to fulfill your own desires. But the Lord. You can say, I thought that I had the perfect home. I thought that everything was okay. But the Lord stepped in and he messed all that up till the point where I had to depend on him because I had nowhere else to go. But the Lord, the Lord did that. The Lord does that. You could insert your own story and you, you could say, I was living this life and I was not passionate about God and I was not seeking after him and then he destroyed my life. All of the great testimonies have that ring to them. I thought I was fine God put a roadblock in my life, and now I'm following him in this way. I'm not saying that if you have a boring testimony that it's not great. What I'm saying is this, is that there's a ring to it. Some are more severe than others, but the Lord. And what did the Lord do? The Lord steps in, and he afflicts Pharaoh. He brings about something uh, miraculous, plagues. And it's, it becomes clear that Sarai, I'm assuming because she is not afflicted by the plagues, it becomes clear that there's a problem here. Somehow Pharaoh finds out, and he questions him. Now think about this for a second. Here we have a man of God who's heard from God, who's had faith in God, who's been walking with God, he's been worshiping God, he's been all of these things. And now you have somebody from outside the, the community of faith, such as Pharaoh, who's clearly not a believer in God, who doesn't follow him, who doesn't worship him, and any of those things, but he's clearly pointing out the holes in Pharaoh's faith. 
What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why are you lying? Why are you lying? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? I don't even care. Get out of my sight. The Hebrew here says, uh, now then, uh, here, wife, take, go. The English kind of stretches it out a little bit there. Now then, here's your wife, take her and go. But the Hebrew is like, just get out of my face. Get out of here. Abraham is, or Abram at this point, is solemnly, solemnly rebuked by someone outside. And what is he rebuking? He's calling out the very things that he knows that he shouldn't be doing. He's showing like, you should not be acting this, in this way. You should not be doing this. And so Pharaoh gives orders concerning him and they send him away with his wife and all that he had. Abram leaves with his tail between his legs. He's humbled. He's scared and he goes, man, I screwed up. I screwed up. I created a real problem. Why do we do that? This is a metaphor for our life. If, if, if we were to talk about I mean, hopefully I've given you enough examples. But if we were to talk for just a minute here about what, what this is, it's simply this. It's the faithlessness of fear. It's the faithlessness of fear. It's fear of famine. It's, it's fear of man. It's fear of being found out. If you're to really apply this, what you might want to do is you might want to look at uh, a book by uh, Ed Welch, Edward Welch, called When People Are Big and God Is Small. He says this, however you put it, the fear of man can be summarized this way. We re replace God with people instead of a biblically guided fear of the Lord. We fear others. We fear others. How many of us are doing this? I would submit that most of us in this room are doing this on a regular basis. Now, let, let me give you a comfort. But the Lord, he's going to correct it if we're his. Many, many, many of us are in this place. Look at what Ed Welch points out here. Have you ever struggled with peer pressure? That's teenage fear of man. Uh, are you overcommitted? That's, uh, that's fear of man in being a people pleaser. I've got to please everyone. It's, that's fear of man. You can fear, uh, it, it says, is self-esteem critical, a critical concern for you? That's fear of man. Am I esteemed? Do you esteem me? Do you think highly of me? I struggle with this so badly, more than I want to admit. Every Saturday night, I get tense. I get, I get under pressure because I, 
in part, it's not, and I have to discern this with myself, is my fear that I will misrepresent Christ. Well, yes, but, it, but sometimes I feel like there's more fear of what the people who show up to Outward Church will say. So part of that's a good, healthy fear. I've put my foot in my mouth many times in this sermon. But it's a, that can be a good fear. But in reality, self-esteem is a fear of man issue. But our world says over and over again, it's because you don't esteem yourself enough. Could it be that as our culture snowballs out of control, that they are wrong? Could it be? I submit to you that they are wrong and that we are wrong. Do you ever feel as though you might be exposed as an imposter? Are you always second-guessing decisions because of what other people might think? Do you feel empty or meaningless? Do you experience love, hunger? You're controlled. You're controlled by fear. Do you get easily embarrassed? Do you ever lie, especially the little white lies? What about the cover-ups where you're not technically lying with your mouth? Are you jealous of other people? Do other people often make you angry or depressed? Are they making you crazy, he asks? If so, they're probably controlling the center of your life. I can't believe, everything that he does drives me crazy. Everything that she does drives me crazy. They're controlling your life. You have a fear of man issue. We have a fear of man issue. Do we avoid people? He says, uh, aren't most diets, even when they are ostensibly under the heading of health, dedicated to impressing others? The desire for the praise of men is one of the ways that we exalt people above God. And then he says this, perhaps the most dangerous form of the fear of man is the successful fear of man. Such people think that they have made it. They have more than other people. They feel good about themselves, but their lives, lives are still defined by other people rather than God. Now, let me tell you, there are very few of us in this room, and I would venture to say that there is no one in this room that is not touched by this on some level. I gotta tell you, that I think that this is a big issue in the local church. We masquerade as though we're believers in God who fear God. But the truth is, we have no fear of God. It is fear of man. And we have come to God as a purveyor of goods and services. And we say, God, provide for me, and I'll continue to worship you. We don't say it out loud. But we say, as long as this goes well for me, I'll continue to follow you. Now, that's a big deal. That is a really, really big deal. What do we, uh, how do we respond? The first thing that we have to do is that we've got to understand that famine is just a part of faith. Yes, it's followed by faith, but famine, the suffering, 
is a part of faith. And that every time that we have bad circumstances in our life, it is a testing that is showing us where our faith is. So James 1, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Think about Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. That Jesus, as he was as he was going towards the cross. It's not that he was joyful and happy that he's being whipped and beaten and, and all of this stuff, but he is thinking ahead. He's looking ahead to what he is going to accomplish on the cross. And what is he accomplishing on the cross? But he gets you and he gets me. He gets the salvation of all people. He defeats Satan, sin, and death through that act. And James says, based on Jesus... Based on what he's done, I want you to count it all joy whenever you meet trials of various kinds. It may be famine. It may be the loss of a spouse. It may be uh, the loss of never having a spouse. It may be uh, any number of things that life didn't turn out the way that you wanted it to, that things fell apart, that sickness came into your life. But James says, count it all joy. So I'm not joyful about a sick child. I'm not joyful about a marriage that ends. What am I joyful for? I am joyful for what God is going to do in this circumstance. I'm joyful that maybe my sin has been exposed. I'm joyful that God finally brought this to the surface the way that he did when he stepped in and, and God steps in, he brings a plague and Pharaoh knows and he calls him out and he's humbled. God is doing this to humble us oftentimes. Jesus looked at the cross and he said, I'm going to this for the joy that was set before him. Do you have any joy for the trial that you're going through? But then secondly is this, and I'll leave it at this. We assume on God First of all, we don't realize that there's famine in faith, but then the second thing is that we assume on God and we say, I know what's best. By the way, that's the sin in the garden. That's the sin that says, I know what's best for me in my life. That's, it always comes down for that or down to that. Don't assume on God. We often say, well, God wouldn't want me to lack this and so he must be leading me to relationship with this person who doesn't love Jesus, who isn't my spouse, who whatever. We say things like, so that no one will question us, oh, God told me to do this. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah, God spoke to you like that? Maybe you should write that down because that seems really important. God told you to go do something that's completely against his word? God told you something that your Christian friends and, and neighbors said that you should not be a part of that, that should not be a part of your life. He said, God told you? That's a way of us, for us to say, I know what's best for me. Even though we know that God didn't say that to us, we jump that up. Don't assume on God. Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. 
In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make, your stra- make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Instead of fearing man, we're to fear the Lord. When we fear the Lord, we turn away from evil. When we fear man, we're engaged in evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Let me tell you the lie that our culture is telling you. Fear man. Do what everyone else tells you to do. Believe like we all believe. Fall in line with culture and everything's going to go fine for you. It's going to feel fine. Don't assume on God. Be like Jesus who trusts in the Lord. Be like Jesus who while he is about to be crucified says, Father, if possible, take this cup from me. But if not, I'll do it anyway. He trusts in the Father in his moments. That means that you and I can trust in the Father. So what do you do if you find yourself here this morning and you realize, I have been going my own way, I have been doing my own thing. Well, part of the reason why you're going your own way is because you, have no com- you probably have no community around you, at least no community around you that knows what's going on in your life. You don't have solid believing people. You're not a part of the local church. You're not engaging with wisdom. You're, you're leaning on your own understanding. So what do you do? It is turning from sin. First of all, you need someone to speak into your life. So you need someone to speak into what's happening right now in, in what's going on. That means it's, it's confession and repentance. Like, I know that I'm not doing the right thing right now. It's confession and repentance. It could be talking with someone uh, uh, and asking for prayer here this morning and then asking for follow-up. It may be filling out a connection card and just saying, hey, I need to talk with a pastor about uh, some things that are going on in my life. Would you call me? Would you email me? Can we set up a time? And if you're a gal, we'll set you up with a, another gal, most likely, uh, that, can, that can chat with you, or at least a couple of us. Uh, how, how, do you, how, do you, how do you move in this? It cannot happen in a vacuum. It has to happen by telling someone. It has to happen. Now, what do you do if you're someone who says, I've never had relationship with God. I don't even know what this faith, uh, this famine after faith thing is. I don't even have faith right now, but I can see how I've been going my own way. Here's, here's the steps of faith. It is to trust God. Trust God. Trust God in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. The reason why he was crucified was for your sin, for your own self-willed life. How do you trust in Jesus Christ? You say, I want to walk with you. I believe that when you went to the cross, you were crucified for my sins. I see that I should should be put to death eternally for my sins, but I want to receive eternal life. And as a result, I want to walk with you forever. And then you tell someone and you walk with people in the local church. I hope that's clear enough. I pray that you would put faith in Jesus this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask for your help. 
We ask for your wisdom. We pray that you would speak to us this morning in our sin and in our failures and in all the ways that we have lived a self-willed life that is full of the fear of man. And Lord, I pray that we would begin to fear you above all. Lord, that we would walk with you, that we would understand that we cannot continue to live in this way. So Lord, I pray for our church this morning, Lord, that you would, that you would bring about a renewed sense of faith, a renewed sense of trust in you. Lord, that we'd look to you as we make big decisions, just as a church, as a church leadership team, Lord, as people in the church. Lord, I pray that we begin to speak to you and talk to you on a regular basis, not just thinking and assuming on you that we know what's best, but Lord, that we'd hear you and that we'd walk with you. It's in your name we pray, amen.